Uh, the Christmas season is upon us. Somehow, uh, in the blink of an eye, 342 days have passed since the last Christmas morning. Uh, I didn't figure that out on my own. I used a, a little website to, to figure that out. And, uh, you know, when you, you think about Christmas, especially uh, a Christ, Christian Christmas, uh, there's a particular name for that, and the name is called Advent. Advent starts on uh, the fourth Sunday before Christmas Day, which uh, coincidentally is today. Uh, we actually planned that. It wasn't really a coincidence. Well, we didn't plan that Advent would be. Just shut up, Mike, and keep talking, right? All right. So uh, the, the English word uh, Advent, it comes from the Latin word. It's called Adventus. And, and what Adventus meant uh, was, was coming. And when you apply that to, to Christianity, Advent is a, a time to remember how the ancient G Jewish people waited expectantly for the, for the coming Messiah, the, the anointed one, the chosen one, the Savior, who, who Christians like you and I are absolutely convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt came to this earth and the God-man Jesus Christ some 2,000 years ago. But Advent is more than just remembering uh, and looking forward to the birth of Christ. It's also looking forward to, to the fact that he's, he's going to come back again one day and that, that he's going to establish a new heaven and a new earth, that he is going to destroy once and for all all the evil and the suffering and the death that exists right now. And that's something to, to look for excitedly, because, especially now, because we live in this world that's just completely out of its mind. I mean, there is so much anger and animosity and contention and judgmentalism that's in our culture right now. And, and the idea that, that Jesus is going to come back one day and he's going to fix all that stuff, that, that, that all of that stuff is going to go away, is going to be a, a wonderful thing to look forward to. And I would imagine that many of you are familiar what it, uh, of what it's like to anticipate Christmas, but for a completely different reason. And the reason that most of us know what it's like to anticipate Christmas is because as a kid, we were looking forward to this beautiful thing called presents. And I can think back to when, when I was a kid, uh, I couldn't wait for Christmas to come. I mean, I was so uh, excited for Christmas. I was, a, was an only child. We were, we were living out uh, at 5001 Irene Drive, right off of, of 81 out there in, in Lower Paxton Township. And, and we had one of those rural mailboxes. And, and my bus stop was about a, a mile away, literally a mile away from where our house was. And uh, I would walk home. And one of my jobs was to open the mailbox to get the mail out. And I can remember when, when Christmas time came around, I always was waiting for one particular thing in the mail. And that was the Sears Wishbook Catalog. Man, that puppy was the bomb. And as I'd open the mailbox and there was that catalog and I'd be like, yes! And I would go inside and my mom and dad, they both worked. So I was one of those kids that were called latchkey kids or whatever that was. That should have scarred me, I'm sure. 
But, uh, you know, I would go in the house. I'd be by myself. I'd have that catalog out. I'd, you know, I'd go get a Coke out of the refrigerator and uh, find some Doritos and stuff like that. And I would lay down there on the floor with, with, you know, the greatest blessings from God of all Coke and Doritos and the Sears Wishbook catalog. And I would have this pen and I would begin to do the same thing that many of you did. You would circle the things that you wanted. And I would drain that pen because I wanted a lot of stuff as a greedy only child. And uh, that was, was what, what was exciting for me. And then mom and dad, they would come home and, and I would bring them the catalog and I would look at them and I would say, go buy and bring me joy. That's what I'm looking for. And after submitting my order, then man, my uh, level of excitement for Christmas would be just through the roof. And eventually Christmas Eve would come. I wouldn't sleep a lick the entire night. I'd get out of bed about 4 o'clock in the morning. I'd go wake mom and dad up. And they had just probably fallen asleep because as an only child, I got lots of gifts. And, you know, it took a lot of time to, to put together that, you know, AFX racetrack and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, they, they're like, leave me alone, kid. Why do we even have you? You know, and, uh, and we would get up and it would be Christmas morning. And I would imagine from your laughter that some of you probably were the same exact way. That your anticipation for Christmas was because of the things that you were going to get. And uh, perhaps you don't even remember the Christmas wish book. It went away back in 1993. Sears tried to bring it back for a season or two recently, but we all know what had happened to Sears. But maybe, you know, you're in your 20s and your uh, Christmas wish book wasn't from Sears, but, but maybe it, it used to be the, the Toys R Us uh, flyer that came in the mail, which now is gone also, or the Target or the Walmart Christmas flyers. But regardless of whatever it is, as a kid, Christmas was always filled with anticipation. But have you ever wondered, where in the world did all of that anticipation come from? What's the, what's the source of that? What's the genesis of it? Uh, where is all of this expect? Uh, I don't even know how to say the word, expectancy that surrounds Christmas. Where does it come from? And I'm not talking about, you know, the excitement of presents. I'm not talking about the excitement of being together for family or for having a week or two off from work. But where did the original anticipation of the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one, come from? Well, we're going to answer that question over the course of the next four weeks as Pastor Ben and I uh, take you down a journey that we're entitling A Christmas Worth Waiting For. Uh, so let's get started. Today we are going to go to the very beginning of where all of the excitement came from. And it's found in a very, very uh, unexpected place in the midst of a very, very, very bad day. A day so bad that it's the reason for all the pain in the world. It's a reason, it's the reason why loved ones die. It's the reason why, why children and women are abused. It's the, the reason why relationships get destroyed and why, why violence roams our streets and why in poverty infects our world and why the, the powerful explo exploit the weak and why wars are fall and why every other evil exists on the face of this earth. It all happened on one very, very bad day that the Bible records in Genesis chapter 3. So if you have a Bible with you, 
open it up to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. Uh, we're actually going to read the entirety of the chapter because I think the context is uh, important. And if you are able to stand uh, in honor of God's word, I would humbly ask that you would do so, please. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so the, one, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid, themse hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." And the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all, living, of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and, the flaming, uh, with, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard uh, the way to the tree of life. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, just prior to Genesis chapter 3, 
Uh, our original father and mother, Adam and Eve, who were referred to in Genesis 3 as the man and woman, they're doing extremely well. Actually, life couldn't have been really any much better. Uh, they're living in this perfect place. It's called the Garden of Eden. Uh, it's a place of unimaginable beauty. Uh, there's no death. There's no pain. There's no suffering. Uh, the work that they have been given to do to, to care for and tend the, the garden is it, not really work at all. It's actually joyful, and, and, they're, and they're blessed by it. They, they're engaged in this perfect relationship with one another, and the best thing of all is that they're in a perfect relationship with God. And now one of the other bonuses of living in the Garden of Eden at that time was there was only one single solitary rule to follow. They didn't have to worry about the Ten Commandments. They, they didn't have to worry about the 613 Old Testament laws that the ancient Jews had to follow. And they definitely didn't have to worry about the 23,000-page federal code that contains all of the laws that are in the United States of America. They didn't have to worry about any of that stuff. The only rule that the first man and the first woman had to follow is recorded here in Genesis chapter 2, and it goes like this. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. All they had to do was follow that one single rule. Now, of course, you and I know how that works. We can have everything in the world, but if there is one thing that is off limits to us, that's what we want. That's what we go for. We see that in the smallest little crumb cruncher. You can tell the kid you can do this, that, and the other thing, but don't touch, you know, the... the uh, uh, the Tiffany lamp that's on the table. Why you'd have a Tiffany lamp on a table with a little kid, I have no idea. But that's what the kid goes for, right? It doesn't matter that he's got all the Legos and Fisher Price things and stuff like that. He wants the Tiffany lamp. And that's kind of the way that, that we are, that we go for the, the very thing that we're not allowed to go for. But there's something else that's actually going on here, something that, that is, has happened behind the scenes in the heavenly realm. Sometime after uh, God had created all things, sometime after Genesis 131, which states God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Sometime after that point, there was a rebellion in heaven. And this uh, angel, who was the worship leader, by the name of Satan, decided that he wanted to usurp God's power. And so he had a rebellion, and, and he had a group of other uh, angels that, that went with him in this rebellion. And, and God puts down this rebellion and Satan and his minions and his, his demons uh, set their sights on destroying all of the good things that God has created. And he's laser focused on one particular good thing, and that's humanity. And on this very, very bad day that's recorded in Genesis chapter 3, we see that it starts off with a great sin. 
Satan takes the the form of a serpent. He approaches the woman, and in verse 1 of Genesis 3, he says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, Satan is very crafty, folks. And he does all kinds of things to try to trap us. And so he starts right out of the chutes with intentionally misquoting God's word. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God never said that. And the woman knows it. And so she corrects Satan And she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden or in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, realizing that that his misquoting of of Scripture hasn't really gotten him anywhere, he decides to to up the ante. He decides to, to try a couple other things. And so he goes and he begins to call into question God's truthfulness and his trustworthiness. And so he he looks at the woman and he says, you will not surely die? Really? That's what God told you? That if you touch that tree or you eat of that tree, you're going to die? Oh, that's just simply not true. But he doesn't stop there. He continues to to discredit God by calling into question God's very goodness. Because in verse 5 he says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In the matter of two sentences, Satan calls into question God's word, God's trustworthiness, and God's goodness. And it's the same exact playbook that he uses today. Satan, or more than likely one of his cadre of demons, comes into our lives. And he causes us to question God's word. He looks at us and he says, you know what? Does God's word really say that you can't sleep with someone who's not your spouse? Certainly God's word doesn't say that. Or does God's word really say that you need to to love your enemy? You know, maybe you you just need to love some of your enemies, but not all of your enemies. Or he comes in and he calls into question God's trustworthiness. Can you really trust that God's going to heal your mom from that breast cancer? Can you really trust that, that, that God's going to deliver your friend from that addiction. Can you really trust that? And if he doesn't, can you really trust that he's going to provide for you when they're not in your life? Or he calls into question God's goodness. How can God be good when your life is completely falling apart? How can God be good when your kid is critically ill and is in the NICU right now? How can God be good when you lost your job or where your spouse has abandoned you? Or, or how can God be good and you fill in whatever in the blank, whatever bad thing is happening in your life right now? That's what Satan does. He calls into question God's word. God's trustworthiness, and God's goodness. And tragically, the woman, she falls for Satan's deception. 
verse 6. So woman, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes so that it was going to, be, going to be tasty for her belly and it looked really, really good. Two of the things that we fall for all of the time. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. In other words, it was going to, going to open up her intellect. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And brothers and sisters, if the woman's failure wasn't bad enough, the man's failure was even greater. The Bible tells us the dude was standing right there. He's the, the king of complacency. He's the prince of passivity. He is the apex of apathy. And he watches his wife be tempted by Satan and challenged to rebel against God. And he does nothing about it. Guys, if there is one thing that will destroy your family, that will destroy your wife, that will destroy your kids, that will destroy your grandkids, that will destroy your, your nieces and nephews. It's if you live a life of passivity. And far too many guys do it. Far too many guys that, 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 that claim the name of Christ, they're the most passive cowards in the world. And, and they let their wives get destroyed and their kids get destroyed. They, they, they're not the spiritual leaders of the family. Heck, they got to get drugged to church by their spouse. And they call themselves the, the spiritual leader, and instead they're, they're really just an oppressive, mean, nasty person who tramples their family under their feet. Don't be like the first Adam. You don't want to be like this guy. This guy is a bum. Don't live like this. Don't let this happen to your family. And if you have left it happen to your family, stop, change, repent, ask forgiveness. Pray that God would guide you. Because when, when God's church is the weakest, is when God's men are the most apathetic. Don't be like this guy. Completely bonus. Nothing written in the message about that at all. So, rather than, than crushing the serpent right there, rather than, 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 than taking that serpent by the neck and chopping its head off, the man joins the woman in her rebellion against God. And back in Genesis 2, God had given a direct command to the man not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the man obviously shared that information with the wife because she shared it with the serpent. And yet the man allows the woman to directly disobey God's command. And with that single act of rebellion, all that God declared as good was now wrecked and with it, came a great loss. Let me explain. 
this great loss is made up of multiple components. First of all, there is a loss of innocence. And I want you to notice the abruptness that happens from verse 6 to verse 7. I, I mean, they, they, they sin, and the instant they sin, then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It shows us that it doesn't take very long, folks, for sin to wreck our lives and cause this great loss. The first thing the man and woman lose is they lose perhaps one of the most valuable things of all. It's called innocence. Suddenly they knew they were naked. And what had been natural in the midst of perfection now comes with shame. And so shame comes into their lives and they try to find a way to cover their shame. And isn't that the way that it happens with sin? Sin steals our innocence and it replaces it with shame. Take a moment. And think back with me to a time where, where you willingly stepped into sin, or maybe you willingly dove headfirst into sin. When, when you gave yourself away to that man or woman who wasn't your spouse, when you cheated on a test, or cheated on a friend, or, or cheated on the field of play, when you blatantly lied to, to a, your mom or your dad or a loved one, or when, when you stole for the first time, or where, when you took advantage of the weak kid on the playground, or, or when you treated someone poorly because they were different, or when you failed to be a faithful employee in your workplace. Do you remember that feeling that very first time of innocence lost? of the lies that we have to tell to cover our tracks and to make ourselves feel better, of the great extent that we had to go to to, to cover up all of this mess that we just created, or the manner in which we try to justify our actions. You see, when innocence is lost, shame fills the void, and shame causes us to do some of the most foolish things that ultimately make the circumstances worse and worse and worse. But isn't, innocence isn't the only thing that gets lost when sin comes to the play. So is relationship. Look at verses 9 and 10. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Prior to the sin, the, the, the man and the woman, they, they lived in this intimate relationship with God. They walked with him and talked with him, and he provided for them, and they trusted him, and they weren't afraid of them. He, they, they never had to hide from him. They're in this beautiful relationship. There was no barrier that stood between them at all, and then sin entered the world, and now they're hiding from him. And I know how this plays out in my life, you guys. I know how it works. I know that when I sin, I want to hide from God. And all of a sudden, I don't want to pray anymore. And all of a sudden, I don't want to read God's word anymore. 
And all of a sudden, worship is not something that's joyful. It becomes a chore. And, 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 and I don't want to serve anymore. I just want to, want to circle the wagons. And, and all of a sudden, I become critical and judgmental of other people. And I look down my nose at them. And you know, it, it plays the same for every one of you who's sitting in this room right now. And that is typically what happens for those who are madly in love with God. The very things that bring joy, praying and reading his word and worshiping him and serving and, and, and living lives of grace, they become struggles. But you know, for those who, who don't know him, who don't have a relationship with him, it, it pushes them further away. Because we don't want anybody, when, 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 when God is not in our lives, when we don't want to surrender, we don't want anybody telling us what to do. We want to do our own things. Don't tell me what to do. I want to do my own thing. We want to call our own shots. We want to be our own God. Sin messes up all of that stuff. But sin does something else. It causes us to blame God. Look at how the man replies when God asks him if he has eaten from the forbidden tree. The man says to God, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. You see this guy? You see what a bum he is? I mean, look at what he's doing. He looks at God. And he says, you, you know, God, that, that one that, that, that you gave me when I was alone, you know, that one that, that, that when you put her in front of me and I looked at her for the first time, I'm like, wow, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. Yeah, you gave her to me and she caused me to sin. It's your fault, God. If you would have never given her to me, I would have followed your rules. And this first Adam, this wimp, this milk toast, whatever milk toast is, I don't even know what it is. He blames God for the blessing that God had given him. But this doesn't just damage his relationship with God. It damages his relationship with his wife. I mean, the dude has just thrown the wife under the bus. She cannot be happy about that. She's like, you were here. Why didn't you stop me, right? All of a sudden, this relationship is completely messed up. And similarly, when God tells the woman what the consequences of her sin is, it further messes up her relationship with the man. Hey, God looks at her and says, you know what, lady, this is what's going to happen. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And then he says this, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. In other words, he's going to want one thing. You're going to want another thing. And there's going to be this turmoil in your relationship. And he's going to rule over you. Have you ever wondered where the source of the gender wars came from? It's right here. It's been here from the beginning of time. That's where it comes from. At this point, pretty much 
everything is a complete train wreck. Sin has been unleashed in the world, and it's only going to take till the next chapter, till Adam and Eve discover how bad the genie is that they've left out of the bottle. Because she's going to give birth to two kids, Cain and Abel. And her one kid, Cain, and her other child, Abel, there's going to be an issue that happens with them. And Cain is going to jealously kill Abel. Do we really understand what that just said? Think about that. I spent yesterday morning and part of the afternoon ministering to a family whose son took his own life. We did a memorial service here. I listened to this 32-year-old guy's friends come up here and they shed tears all over this podium. It was beautiful and horrific all at the same time. Can you imagine the pain of a mom or a dad who loses their son to suicide? And then think of what it must be like for a mom or a dad to have one of their sons kill the other one. You lose two sons at one shot. Adam and Eve suddenly discover, oh my gosh, look what we have done. Look at the pain that we have inflicted in our lives. But it doesn't stop there. The wheels have come off in lots of different places. The, the, the very thing that makes the woman the most distinct from man, that she can actually have a kid, and that's an amazing thing. Guys, we can't make that happen. Women are the one who, who bring children into the world that, that keep the, the generations moving forward. I wouldn't have Mike, John without Kath. The very thing that makes her distinct from man now is fraught with pain. The very thing that, 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 that gave the man joy and fulfillment working the land now is hard. It's difficult. On top of this, they're tossed out of the garden. They're homeless. They, they, they were in a perfect place. They're evicted. They were living in a mansion. You know, now they're, they're, they're living in a grass plot. Not surprisingly, as we said, the, the relationship between the two of them is damaged. And worst of all, the, their relationship with God has been completely wrecked. And at this point, Think about what must be going on. There can be nothing but questions. They've got to be asking themselves, are things too far gone? Can this ever be fixed? Will I always struggle with this man? Will I always struggle with this woman? Will my relationship with God always be severed? Will any evil ever be stopped? I mean, their lives have got to be filled with despair as God is pouring out these punishments. However, in the midst of this very, very bad day, a ray of great hope breaks through the darkness. 
It's a ray of hope that becomes the, the source for the reason for all of the excitement and anticipation and the joy that, that comes with Advent. And, and I don't know if you caught it when we were reading it, but it's right in there. The, the greatest news of all comes in the form of, of, of punishment. God's laying out judgments. And in verse 15, as he's laying out judgments to Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, out of the sorrow of great sin and great loss comes great hope, and it's found right in that verse. That verse is the very first messianic promise in the Bible, the very first promise that God is going to make a way, he's going to provide a way for everything to be made right, for sin to be destroyed, for relationships to be put back together, especially the relationship between a, a, a separated man and a separated woman for the from their God. And, and this is what's amazing. This great hope comes in the midst of judgment. And isn't that how grace works? Isn't that how grace works? It's always unexpected. It always catches you by surprise. I mean, think about what God should have really done. I mean, the sin of these, there was one rule. They broke the only rule. God should have wiped them out. That childbearing is difficult and you're going to have a tough relationship with, with your, your husband? That's a penalty? Really? Okay, I've never done childbirth. I know I've been there. It's bad. I get that. It's scary. All right? But I, I, I mean, the punishment should have been definitely bigger. That, that the man's work is hard? Really, God, that's all that you got for this? I mean, if I'm doling out the punishments, if my kids break the one single rule that happens, I, I mean, they're getting the rubber spoon the least. I mean, there's bad stuff going to happen to them. But God pours out his grace. And in the midst of darkness, in the midst of despair, in the midst of loss, the gracious God of the universe provides a ray of hope. And that ray of hope, it continues through the entirety of the Old Testament. And Pastor Ben's going to show you some of that next week, and I'm going to show it to you the following week, and Pastor Ben's going to come back and show it to you the, the week after that. And that ray of hope ultimately culminates, or culminates in the consummation in a dirty animal pen through the womb of a teenage virgin named Mary some 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ. Now let me explain what God is declaring here. In Genesis chapter 13 or 3 15. Notice what God does. God does something completely unexpected here. It says that he creates enmity between Satan and the woman. Now, enmity, that is a word that we do not use very often unless we happen to get those letters in Scrabble, okay? 
and our mind is actually working. Okay, some of us may not even know what enmity is. You know, I had to, you know, make sure that I actually understood it, so I broke out the trusty Webster's Dictionary. Here's the, the definition. It's the bitter attitude or feelings of an enemy or of mutual enemies, hostility and antagonism. So what we just read here in the Bible, in, in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, is that, that the good God of the universe created bitter attitude or feelings of an enemy or mutual enemies, hostility and antagonism. That's what happened here. Now that seems completely contrary to, to God. But God doesn't do anything that is not good. So there's something that we've got to figure out here. We've got to figure out how God using enmity can be actually a good thing. Well, notice first of all that who is God speaking to? He is speaking to, to Satan. And he's telling Satan that he is going to put enmity between Satan and the woman. Now you need to understand, Satan already had enmity towards the woman. God didn't have to create that. It already existed. When, when he fell, his plan was to destroy humanity. He hated Eve. He didn't like her. He knew what was going to go down. His goal was to get Eve to stop worshiping God and start worshiping him. Well, he succeeds in the first part. He gets Eve to stop worshiping God, to rebel against God. And God shows up and God says, you know what? You're not going to have the rest of her. I'm not going to let her worship you. I'm going to cause her to hate you. I'm going to cause her to hate sin. That's what's happening there. God is blessing. He's giving Eve a blessing by causing her to hate sin. He's causing Eve to, to have the same hatred for sin that God has for sin. And he creates that. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a great blessing. Because God not only put that in her, we're told that he put it in her offspring. And this is important to understand. You see, God has created inside of us a hatred for sin. Now, some of you are like, whoa, Mike, hold your horses. That's not true. People love sin. Well, sin is always lovely in the beginning. But bathe in it for a little while. Ask the heroin addict how pleasurable it is after a while. Ask the sex addict how pleasurable it is. Ask the person who has sold their soul away how pleasurable it is. Because you wait into sin long enough and what's joyous for a while no longer is joyous. And we want to escape it. We want to escape its consequences. We want to escape its clutches. I mean, God has put in, inside of every one of us a hatred for sin. We might, we might grab it for a little while, but after we wallow in it for a while, we're like, oh my gosh, this is horrific. And we're told here that, 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 that 
that, that God is, is going to put this enmity here, uh, not only between the, man, or the woman and Satan, but between their offsprings. Now, you got to think about this. Satan doesn't have offspring. I mean, he's not like creating baby demons, all right? All of those things have, have been, been already created. They were created, the, the, the angels were created by God, and they fell, and there, there's no more getting created here. So the offspring has to be something else. And I believe what the offspring of Satan are all of those who reject Jesus, who want nothing to do with him, who want nothing to do with Jesus' purposes or Jesus' people. And likewise, the offspring of, of, of the woman, they're, they're those who love Jesus. And that's where, that's where the enmity comes now between uh, those who are not Christians and those who are Christians. I, I mean, you watch the news and like, you know, it's okay to love everything, but don't love Christians. You can do bad things to Christians. That's what the evil, what, what, the, what has happened is, is the evil one's followers who don't even realize they're following the evil one, they have enmity towards Christians. And the fact of the matter is Christians have enmity towards non-Christians also. And we're called to, to, to reach out to them and love them, but, what we're, but, but they're opposed and so there is going to be pain. We're supposed to have compassion, and we do. But they are enemies of God. Now, notice how this whole thing has worked. It's gone from the specific, Satan and the woman, to the general, the offspring of Satan, the offspring of the woman. And now it goes back to the specific, because he says this, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There is a specific offspring of the woman who is going to bruise the head of the evil one. And so how does this happen? Well, that offspring is Jesus. And we're told that Jesus is going to bruise the head of the evil one and that the evil one is going to bruise his heel. He's going to be like a dog nipping at your ankle. And that's what Satan's going to do. He's going to attack Jesus constantly. And we see this from the moment that Jesus is born. The, 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 the world and, and the things of Satan are arrayed against the child. From the, actually, from the moment he's conceived. Because Joseph is going to divorce the woman. He's going he's to get rid of her. And God has to actually intervene. And then Jesus is born, and what happens is, is the evil one, Herod, wants to kill Jesus. And so Herod goes and he wipes out the two-year-olds and down. And God has to intervene and move Jesus to Egypt. And Jesus comes back and, and he gets baptized. And who shows up on the scene? But the evil one who, who wants to tempt Jesus. And for three years of Jesus' ministry, all of this opposition that is coming against Jesus, where is its source coming from? It's the evil one constantly at Jesus' heel, constantly trying to destroy Jesus. But none of it works. 
And so Satan ratches it up the game. And he goes to one of Jesus' closest friends and convinces him to betray him. And then Satan is now full bore in wanting to destroy Jesus. The arrest happens, and Satan is there. The trials happen, and Satan is there. The beatings occur, and Satan is there. The, 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 the clothes are stripped from Jesus' body. The crown of thorns is crushed onto his head, and Satan is there. The cross is thrust upon Jesus' back, and he has to carry it through the town up to the hill of Golgotha, and Satan is there. And Jesus is laid upon that crossbeam, and the spikes are driven through his wrists and his ankles, and Satan is there. And Jesus is lifted high, and Satan rejoices, and the world sneers at Jesus, and the men gamble for Jesus' clothes. And, and the, the thieves on the cross, they mock Jesus, and the people spit upon him, and Satan is there and Jesus cries out it is finished and his life is gone and Satan rejoices and he believes that he's been snipping at the heel of Jesus for so long that he has finally succeeded and for three days there is a celebration in hell and then the tomb is found open and the stone rolled away and the angels are there, and the women show up, and the angels say, "What? why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? He has risen. And the God of the universe, his son, bruises the head of Satan and crushes him. And that, brothers and sisters, that is why we anticipate Christmas. Because we celebrate that Jesus has come. And we rejoice that he is coming back. And folks, that gives us great hope. Lord God, you are so good. We love you with all of our hearts. Father, forgive us for when we fail you. Thank you, Father, for this season that is upon us. Lord, may it be different this year than the past. May, Lord, we, 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 we redirect our focus on, on, on all of the earthly kinds of things, and may we direct it upon you. Father, would you cause us to, to love you more and to love sin less? Would you blow our minds as we think about the grace that you have poured out upon us from your Son? Lord, would you help us to, to proclaim the good news of your gospel to, to those who are hurting and wounded around us. For you are good and you are glorious and you have won the victory. And it's through your son's glorious name we pray and all God's people said.